Hello, this is Arthur Bush. You're listening to Radio Free Flint. Today our episode guest is author John Smolin, who's an award-winning novelist whose historical fiction tells the story of the tragic and shocking bombing of the Bath, Michigan schoolhouse in 1927. There were 45 people killed in that bombing and countless children and adults injured. In the spring of 1927, Andrew Kehoe, the treasurer for the school board of Bath, Michigan, spent weeks surreptitiously wiring the public school as well as his farm with hundreds of pounds of dynamite. The explosions on May 18th, the day before graduation, killed and maimed dozens of children, as well as teachers, administrators, village residents, including Kehoe's wife, Nellie. A respected member of the community, Kehoe himself died when he ignited his truck loaded with crates of explosives and scrap metal after he had had set off explosions. In its portrayal of several Bath school children, Day of Days examines how such a trauma scars one's life long after the dead are laid to rest and the wounded heal, and how an anguished but resilient American village copes with the bombing, which in its time seemed beyond comprehension, and now may be considered a harbinger of the future. One survivor, Beatrice Turcott, who decades later lies in her deathbed, recalls the spring of 1927 and how this haunting experience had led her to the conviction that one does not survive the present without reconciling hard truths about the past. Smolens has published 12 works of fiction. 11 of those were novels and a collection of short stories. His most recent novel is Day of Days. His novel Wolf's Mouth was selected as the Library of Michigan's notable book for 2017. His work has appeared in various publications across the nation. His work has been featured in the Columbia Journal of Literature and Art, the Boston Globe, the Los Angeles Times, and the Washington Post. He was educated at Boston College, the University of New Hampshire, and the Writers' Workshop at the University of Iowa. He's been on the faculty at Michigan State University, Western Michigan University, and is a professor emeritus at Northern Michigan University, where he taught in the English department and served as director of the Masters of Fine Art program in creative writing. In 2010, John Smolens was the recipient of the Michigan Author of the Year Award from the Michigan Library Association. He lives in Marquette, Michigan. Thank you for listening to us. We hope you enjoy this podcast. And uh, welcome, John. Thank you very much. Good to be here, Arthur. And I'm glad to that you took time to join us. Uh, uh, we're interested in listening to uh, some stories about the book Day of Days, historical fiction. And tell us, uh, tell us just a summary of what that book is. The reason that I was drawn to this, not many people know, though I think here in Michigan it is better known than in other parts of the This is historical fiction and that is based on the real incident that occurred in the town of Bath, which is about 10 miles northeast of Lansing, in May of 1927. Terrible incident where uh, on the day before graduation, the, the town's relatively new, a local farmer named Andrew P. Keogh had 
spent weeks and quite possibly months wiring the entire building. This was a large brick building with hundreds of pounds of explosives and setting it up with timers and so forth so that uh, the morning of May 18th, he detonated, fortunately, not the entire building, but a good portion of the building. The number of people who were maimed and wounded, I don't think has ever been clearly determined, but there were a lot of people who were seriously injured. Uh, and carried those injuries for a long time, if not for their lives. So the story revolves around the town of Bath leading up to this incident, uh, then a, a description of that particular day in considerable detail. And then it follows the main characters of the story, who are fictional, into the rest of their lives, trying to describe what the ramifications of this may have been for them and how it influenced the way they, they, they viewed life and how they lived the rest of their days. The book is in, in the genre of historical fiction. I believe so. Uh, I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little wary of pigeonholing anybody's books, particularly mine, say this is historical fiction. But there's no denying that this is based on real historical events. Sometimes it, it seems to me that when people say, oh, it's historical fiction, it's... Uh, it's almost like they're trying to put it away in a corner like that somehow diminishes its relevance to today. When my hope is that even though this book describes uh, an occurrence that came about nearly a decade ago, 1987, there are parallels. I don't go, I don't think I go overboard in trying to draw those parallels, but I would hope that a contemporary reader would see that there are certainly connections between what happened then and what, and the source of we could draw some parallels, but would prefer the reader draw their own. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I I try not to use my books as as a bully pulpit, if you will. I mean, I have my say, but my hope is if I describe the environment, in this case, uh, a small rural a farm town in the early stages of the 20th century, and how the people lived before this incident, and then describe the incident and you know, how they came out of it on the other side. My hope is that, uh, I mean, readers are going to take away very different feelings and, and thoughts from it, I would imagine. So I, I think, you know, once you finish writing a novel, you kind of have to let it go. I've had people contact me, write me or talk to me, and they've told me what they've thought about one. And sometimes I'm nodding my head and saying, yes, that, that makes perfect sense to me. But there have been times when people have said things I'm going, Really? Where's that coming from? But that's their reading. You know, you have to kind of step back and say, this is entity that is separate from yourself. Sort of like the temptations. It's just my imagination, right? It's just my, <laughs> yes, thank you for that Michigan connection. Absolutely. Talking about what you said that the life had changed in terms of the uh, before and the after for the people, the characters in your book. And I'm curious if you would take us uh, for just a brief ride, sure. describe what you think those changes might have been. Well, this is a work of fiction, as I said. There are two sets of characters. A number of the characters who were directly involved in the bombing are based on the, the real historical figures, Andrew Keogh, the, the perpetrator. And then there's a, a number of people who were involved, such as school administrators. And after the fact of the bombing, there were authorities, you know, pol police, the county prosecutor, you know, people like that. They are based, those characters are based on the history, the histories of the actual. Then there are um, the main characters of the story are really four children and two in particular who are fictional. Uh, the, I would say the most main character, most central character, 
B. Turcott, Beatrice Dirk Turcott, who was about 14 years old at the time of the bombing. She is actually, the telling of the story, she is a very old who is in assisted living and knows this of dying. She's looking back on her. No moment, no event in the rest of their life was ever occurred without being somehow colored or, or tainted by the events of that bombing. It's something that they never went that never never left them. Uh, I know today we talk about the PTSD. I can't. I, I you know I don't have the medical expertise to say that children who in, were involved in that bombing experienced that. But my guess is that in the aftermath they must have certain emotional and intellectual ramifications uh, that carry through the rest of their lives and influence their decisions. Uh, let me give you one example. After the bomb, Jed is a is a very bright kid. After the bombing, he becomes, as he's moving into uh, deeper into adolescence, stronger, getting bigger, he becomes very belligerent. Uh, he, he really doesn't understand why, but he just can't resist getting into fist fights. He picks fights with other boys. He goes after boys who are bigger than him. His uh, role model, his hero is Gene Tunney, uh, you know, the famous, uh, the famous boxer of the time. I, let me just say this. I know sometimes people who, uh, fiction writers who use history, will manipulate history and they will change uh, the the real historical elements, uh, the factual aspects. For example, somebody wrote a novel some years ago, author of the book, but it was a speculation that World War II, had Germany won World War II, you can never be absolutely certain that you, are, that you have all the facts right. Historians don't always agree, <laughs> believe me, if you read about any one historical event, historians have very greatly of exactly what happened, who, what, where, when, and why, all of that varies. So you have to uh, wend your way through that those wickets. In my research of some of the groups that were terrorists of the time, I don't think they use that word about the Ku Klux Klan or uh, the Purple Gang no, or the Black then. Legion. But I mean, those are three of the prominent prominent groups that existed throughout the time period, epoch. There were some who speculated over over time in research that I had. There was a lot of speculation and rumor that maybe there was some connection. Were you able to find that out or have, elaborate on that at all? Well, in the matter of the bombing in Bath, um, this was, it was clearly determined uh, that this was the act of one. In Andrew Keogh acted completely on his own. Though I should say that in the immediate aftermath of the bombing, there was, you know, naturally there was remarkable confusion. Nobody understood what had happened. And it took a while for authorities to really sort out, you know, who did this, perhaps why. There was, for really months after the bombing, there was uh, quite significant concern and fear in the town of Bath that perhaps Keogh had accomplished. Uh, and one result was, and again, this is from the historical record, people who lived in that area uh, were were keenly aware of and afraid that perhaps other buildings, perhaps other homes had been wired as well. So searches were conducted and virtually, every, I think most, if not all structures, people wanted to make sure that there weren't elsewhere because they didn't know. It's really been determined, I think, without a doubt that he, he in this case, he acted alone. Let me just also mention that he not only blew up the school that day, uh, his farm, which was just outside of the village, he wired his entire farm, every every structure, the farmhouse, the chicken coop, the barn, you know, every, every structure was wired with, with dynamite and they all were blown up at virtually this, within minutes of the school going up. He determined he wanted to blow everything, but he did act uh, alone. In and like many of these uh, 
dastardly, deranged individual, he committed suicide thereafter. He did. He did. And again, this is based on a historical record, although historians will differ about certain details. He returned to his farm after it had blown up and it was engulfed in flames. And neighbors who were, you know, standing around the property in awe of the spectacle saw him return in his truck. And they didn't know what, but he did something. It was so smoky. He loaded something into his truck and he drove into town. He drove up to the school in the center of town. There he parked right in front of the school. Of course, at this point, because the school had been blown up, there were, I don't know, dozens and dozens of people involved in the, the first efforts to, to remove the rubble and save what children could find. What he had done is he had loaded this truck up with crates of explosives. And he he had, it was known that he had a very contentious relationship, superintendent of schools, uh, a man named Husick, uh, Emery Husick. As luck would have it, unfortunately, Husick happened to be crossing the, the, the main street just as Keogh arrived. And they began talking right next to the truck. Now, this is where historians differ. Some say that, that Keogh actually had some kind of trigger, some kind of button or something that was prearranged, wired in his truck that he pushed, blew himself and Emery uh, Husick up and several other bystanders. Others say they saw, other uh, witnesses say they saw him take out a gun and shoot the crates, uh, fire into the crates of explosives and blow everything. But the result of that one incident, yes, he was killed, very seriously uh, maimed, limbs, uh, that sort of thing. This uh, Keogh fella, Keogh himself, was as a mad bomber. No, no. He was uh, an active member of the community. On an, on several occasions, he had run for a local government office and he lost. And again, I'm speculating here, but I suspect that that rejection in part contributed to ultimate decision to take these dire steps. He, um, I believe that his marriage had a lot to do with it. Amazingly, he he was not a, a member, a voted, uh, an elected member of school board, but he, at the time, was their acting treasurer. He handled, you know, all of their money. Because of that, he had access to the school building. He had the keys to all the doors. So for him to, for months before this happened, he had the ability to come and go from the school at any hour of the day, become locked doors. And no one would question his coming in. One can only presume, I mean, the amount of dynamite that he put into the building, it was in the hundreds of pounds, and it was wow. distributed all over this large building. It must have taken him weeks at the least, and I, I would not be surprised if it was months, for him to actually set this up. So this was not, this certainly was not a spur of the moment decision. This was something that very slowly and methodically he planned out. The authorities were really impressed with how carefully and how neatly he wired everything up, because fortunately not everything went up so they could examine the unexploded dynamite and the wiring and so forth. And they were really impressed with how well he did the job. There was some reference in my research to Kehoe being motivated in part by some dispute over property. That that too. And, you know, I don't want to place, I don't want to create sort of a hierarchy of grievances, but... I think that one of the truly central aspects of his decision to take this to take this action had to do with money. If you look at his family history, going back to his childhood, his father, uh, Keo, was uh, raised uh, down in Tecumseh, down south of uh, Ann Arbor. 
His father was a man who was vehemently opposed to taxation. It was clear from statements that Andrew Keogh made as a resident in Bath that he was very opposed to taxation. And it's true that um, the school in Bath was called the Bath Consolidated School, had been built merely five years before the bombing in 1902. Uh, I can't remember the exact figure, but hard to believe this substantial brick building cost something under $40,000. In those days, that amount of money placed a significant financial burden on a bat that made a significant decision to invest in their future and their children by building this school. But the result, of course, was that expense had to be distributed through increase of taxes. And Keogh was vehemently opposed to the increase of taxes. Secondly, the farm that he and his wife, Nellie, lived on, her, her maiden name was Price. The Price family, she was raised, and the Price family was a, a, a well-regarded family that, you know, long history. The arrangement was that when she and Andrew, they bought the Price farm from her sister who lived down in Lansing. And I believe that he had great resentment for the fact that he was paying a mortgage that allowing the sisters to live in what he thought was the lap of luxury in Lansing. So there was there were two aspects to the, the financial aspect element. One was that he was paying uh, town taxes that were grossly elevated. And two, I think he resented the fact that he was basically supporting all of the sisters of his wife. So the financial circumstances clearly contributed. I believe there were 38 children and six adults. I think that there was a total of eventually 45 deaths, a direct result of the bombing. I believe one of the deaths occurred quite a bit later. Somebody survived a lot. And we don't know how many were injured, to assume that You know, that's something that in what I've read, and I tried to read a great deal about this event, no one has been able to actually calculate the, the they were in the dozens. And as I said before, some of them were very severe, horrible pictures of children in hospital traction. It, it was not just bruises and cuts. Some of them were seriously, seriously. As those kids grew up, obviously grew up with physical scars and, yep. and emotional. Yes. Well, let me give you one example of how, uh, you know, as much as this is a horrific incident, no mitigating, I hope that the story that I'm telling also underscores the way the town of Bath whole responded. Friends, neighbors came to each other's aid so many different ways. One of the things that they did, you know, I mean, back then, you know, if you had an incident like this today, you would have sort of the response would be in a more official capacity, the state governments. Things were not of that sophisticated a level. One of the ways they dealt with the rubble is very substantial, is they had work and the town townspeople simply organized these on their own. And they would say on such and such a day, fortunately it was in the summertime, the bombing of May, they said, we're going to have a picnic on the school grounds. Dozens, perhaps even hundreds of people would come down uh, with tools and gloves and so forth. And they would spend the day clearing the rubble away, stacking the bricks, stacking the lumber. And at the same time, they would set out an enormous picnic to, you know, uh, take a break and be together. I, you know, I just find that th that approach, that response is, has to be um, expressed in this story just as much as the horrific. Exactly. Because without that, I don't think the town would have been able to ever really. So they spent their time grieving by cleaning up. To a large degree, yes. One of the other things that is clear is that the level of curiosity on the part of the public outside of the town, 
actually was a great hindrance. First hours after the bombing, uh, the stream of cars that came through Bath just to see what had happened caused real problems in getting injured in and out and supplies in or necessary equipment. The police had to really try to control this, this traffic. People weren't accustomed to traffic in the 1920s, you can imagine. But they, they for days, days and even weeks, really, after the bombing, uh, the flow of traffic through the little town of Bath was sort of an unending stream. There were descriptions of uh, people coming in and walking up to the houses, the homes of victims, children, and people would come up and just look in the windows. They wanted to see the people who, you know, the family of, of the victim. Now, did this create re- resentment among some of the locals? I have no doubt that. As time went by, slowly that diminished. But the the initial response was that this was an extraordinary event. It was unlike anything in those days. Bombing a, a public school was just not something people found imagined. Well, it's still hard to imagine. <laughs> well, it is. I, I know. But I unfortunately, think- we have such so many incidents now that if we hear about such, it's not like, oh, that, my God, I never thought that would happen. Truly. Now, uh, there was sort of a, a code of silence that enveloped. Yes, they are extremely reticent uh, when it comes to the bombing. My sincere hope is that uh, any of them who are familiar with my book and read my book realize that it is written in, uh, it is intended uh, to be an honest to describe and understand what. But yes, there, there's been a, a, a reticence and a reluctance to express in a public way their feelings about this event, even now, generations later. Let, let me give you, uh, tell you one thing that occurred several years ago. While I was writing the book, there's a, a journalist and writer down in Bill Caston who wrote on a couple of occasions, wrote about the fact that I was writing this book. It was published in uh, a magazine. Uh, after the first time he wrote about this, I got a long email from a couple who live in Bath now. Um, but they told me that um, they were retired and one or both of them, the wife at least, had for a good portion of her career as a teacher taught in the school bath system. And what really stuck with me is they, she said that even now, decades after the event of the bombing, the, the school receives uh, threats and they particularly tend to increase as they approach the annual anniversary in May of the actual. Uh, there's still people out there who think uh, they can send an email or make a phone call, get a rise. If you go to the, the current school and like so many schools, it's in lockdown. You have to inform them that in advance, the doors are locked, they're in. I've done that. I've been met at the door and walked through. You can't simply walk into You've wrote 11, 11 books, I believe. I think so. I believe about, The last time I counted, yeah. About all manner of stuff. Interesting stuff. Uh, I hope so. A book of this nature, as it would be for me as a trial lawyer, a criminal prosecutor in many horrific, horrific cases, uh, you walk away a little dinged from each one. And you definitely are profoundly emotionally affected. How is writing this book about this story and getting into it the degree that you have, how is it affected? And I mean, I don't know that it's good or bad. I mean, I'm just asking for yourself to psychology. Well, quite frankly, if I stopped writing this book or any of my books, then I might need to seek some professional help. Uh, I, For me, uh, I find writing to be extremely therapeutic. As much as I love a, a walk on the beach, you know, Lake Superior is right down the, the hill from my house. It's a little cold down there right now, but still, I love to walk, walk the beach yesterday. Writing is uh, like, like painting, drawing. Uh, I think these are outlets that for certain people, I find it necessary. 
it helps me maintain a cer certain equilibrium. Writing fiction, now, you know, he, in, in this case, the, the main character, my, this story is told from multiple points of view, which not all, but many of my books. I can't say that each and every character whose point of view I can tell part of the story from is a representation of me. I'm not trying to do that. You know, the main character in this story is a very elderly woman, B. Turcotte, who's recalling her, her childhood. Um, she's about as far away from, from me uh, in so many ways, and yet... Using her as a vehicle, I, in some ways, could tap into my own childhood. There are certain responses, certain emotions, certain thoughts that she has that are recorded in the story, in some way, come up out of my own experience. This book was written in what year? Well, uh, boy, I'd have to go back. I would say I probably worked on this book for four or five years. I tend to take my time. I also will put something aside for a considerable period of time and then pick it up again. So if I say I work on a book for four or five years, that doesn't mean it's continuous. I often will work on a book for a year or two, then stop and I'll work on something else and then I'll come back. Uh, I'm a strong believer that the time away from a book is as really as uh, productive, as instructive as when you're actively working on it. I think your subconscious uh, really continue to turn the material over. And when you finally go back to looking at that manuscript, that unfinished manuscript, you see it with new eyes if you haven't read it months or even more than a year later. So right off the top of my head, I would say four to five years. Uh, the response, well, it, it's, it's uh, so far, it's been quite good. Well, first of all, as I said, a lot of people don't even know that this happened. Most of the people who do are natives of or have lived in Michigan for a long time. Very unfortunately, when you mention the town of Bath, there are certain people in Michigan who immediately say, oh, yes, that's the town where the bombing uh, So, you know, you never know how people are going to respond to your book. And if people don't like your book and they tell you, you, I, I hope I have a thick enough skin to, to say I accept that. You know, I appreciate your, your, your telling me so and, and leave it at that. For the most part, people who have read the book and gotten in touch with it thought that it was well worth it. Again, because of the nature of the story, they seem to very moving to sort of go through what these characters are terrible. Now, the city of Bath, obviously, has never been the same uh, <laughs> or recovered eventually. I don't think that they ever will. Um, not completely. And nor should they. If you go to Bath today, it's still a small town. Of course, with modern, you know, con conveniences, back in 1927, the 10 miles between Bath and the capital of Lansing was a, seemed a far greater distance. Downtown Bath in those days was uh, the, the number of stores uh, and services available in Bath were far more than you have today. Today, Bath is, you know, a, a small community right outside of the city. You get on I-69 and in a matter of minutes in downtown Lansing. So if you walk through the village of Bath, uh, the downtown section is not as nearly as vibrant, quite frankly, as it, it was back then. If you were to go to where the school was, the school was on a knoll on the main street overlooking the village. What they've done is um, after the bombing, they first, they, they did build a school right on the original, uh, which some years ago, I don't know when, but they, that building eventually torn down the current public school in Bath is just across the street, sort of downhill. The knoll where the bombing took place is a park, which I think is very appropriate. When you go to the park, the one sur surviving aspect of the school's structure was there was this really attractive and large cupola on the roof, 
which survived the bombing. And that is the centerpiece uh, in the park. And if you look at the cover of my book, that that cupola, that is based on a photograph of, of that structure. And there's also a very large rock, stands five or six feet high and equally around. And it has a big bronze plaque on it that has the names of all those. Who, so it's, it's a memorial, that site, and very tastefully and quietly and appropriately. Appreciate your time. I wanted to uh, uh, mention that your book was published by Michigan State University Press. So if our listeners want to get a copy of this book, then go to M Press or your website. Yes, thank you. And, uh, if, so thank you for your time. I appreciate it. 